0: Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. Today, I'm joined by a special guest host and two authors, Rachel Rukert and Allison Hong Merrill, who have both recently had memoirs published, which focus on their young lives, dysfunctional families, their courtship and marriage, and the role of the LDS Church and church culture in those events. Uh, First, our special guest host is Jennifer Larson Hall. Jennifer, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, yes, I'm Jennifer. I am married to Andrew Hall and uh, I live in Fukuoka, Japan as well. And I teach at a university in Kitakushi, Japan. I teach second language acquisition, linguistics.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. Okay, so first, Allison, could you introduce yourself?
2: Thank you, Andrew. As you mentioned, my name is Allison Hong Merrill. I'm an immigrant from Taiwan. I came to the U.S. when I was 22 um, to attend college in Texas. I wrote a memoir titled 99 Fire Hoops that is about the power of choice illustrated by my experience as a Taiwanese immigrant disowned by my father back in Taiwan and Abandoned by my American husband in Texas. And at the time, I was inarticulate in English. And so the memoir is about my experience in that horrible situation where I was homeless and penniless and familyless and voiceless in Texas, and where I was determined in that desperate moment. I wanted to take control of my life. I wanted to create a life that I wanted to live. And so that is the theme of the story, is how I use that power of choice to make one right choice at a time to take me to where I want to be.
0: Thank you, all right. And we will definitely get into some of those, some of that history. Uh, Rachel, could you introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, thank you again, Jennifer, um, Andrew, and Allison. It's so great to be here. I've been a fan of Allison's for so long. Um, so I am... An editor, writer, and teacher living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I just graduated with my MFA from Columbia University earlier this year, and my first book is called East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. It's a coming-of-age story with a frame of a year-long travel honeymoon, backpacking with, with my husband days after we had gotten married. And I have an anthropology background. So I was researching marriage and wedding symbolism in the cultures where I immersed myself while also grappling with what marriage, particularly eternal marriage meant to me, having a lot of ambivalence and a lot of fears and a lot of really not great examples of what uh, marriage was. So I'm also the editor-in-chief of Exponent currently. So I'm I'm always grateful to see I feel like dialogue is kind of a, a sibling publication. So thanks again for having us.
0: Great. Thank you. Since this is dialogue and is focused on LDS issues, uh, maybe we'll start talk about what was the role that your experience in the LDS church have and and, and church culture have on your decisions about marriage and some of the other big decisions that you talk about in these, in these uh, books, how would you say those ideas impacted the way you looked at things and the way that you're treated in your marriage? Allison, how about you? We'll start with you.
2: So I grew up in Chinese culture, Chinese culture had, in my personal experience, conditioned women and girls to always wait silently for men's permission to speak or act. And I wasn't that kind of girl, that kind of child who agree with that conditioning. I was disobedient and defiant. And my parents' marriage wasn't ideal. Well, now I look back, I feel like their marriage um, was a very typical Taiwanese marriage. And I say that with love in my heart. I wasn't here to criticize the culture or anything, but I just, like I said, I disagree with some aspects of the culture the way my father treated my mother, which was abusive, physically abusive. Mm -hmm. Like he would beat her when he was drunk and he would try to kill her. You know, he would have a butcher's knife in his hand and he would chase her out because she wasn't just just gonna stand still for my father to, you know, chop her head off. So of course she would run. She would run away from my father. And we lived in the ghetto. I grew up in a ghetto and we live in a very very narrow filthy alleyway and my mother would run out into the alleyway screaming for help and the neighbors would come out of their houses and they would line the alley and watched it was like their after dinner you know post dinner entertainment mm. and nobody would help because it was right for men to beat women and i watched it i was heartbroken i was horrified and i kept telling myself as a child, I could not help my mother, but I could help myself, I would get myself out of this, this kind of relationship, I did not want to repeat my mother's life. So I was that that child who did not want to fit in that mold of what a very traditional Taiwanese woman in the marriage will have to live. Like you have your husband can beat you whenever he feel like because he was the authoritative figure in the family. Mm-hmm. And that, like I said, that was very, that was acceptable. That was the typical role of a husband that you will see in my culture. And then the missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ, a lot Day saints came to teach my family the gospel. And they shared this brand new concept. At the time, I was only 13 years old. And that concept was brand new to me. I never heard of it, but I was fascinated and I was attracted to that concept of an eternal family. And they said that, you know, God has a plan for us and he has this plan. We we know we call the plan, the plan of happiness. I, as a child living through, you know, watching my parents maintain their marriage relationship when at any moment my father could have ended that marriage if he wanted, not my mother, but my father, Mm -hmm. you know, from that background, from that environment to come and face this new concept of an internal family, of an internal marriage. I thought, can this really be possible? Can I have that kind of marriage when I grow up? Can I be in a loving family relationship with the man who loves me and I love him and we can be together forever? And I thought I want that because forever, or eternal that concept to me is that my husband will not just end the marriage whenever he was drunk or whenever he was angry but instead we will work together as equal partners and to maintain a very happy family you know family environment for our children and i thought that's what i want that's what i want and so i have these polar opposite options you know mm-hmm. i could follow the chinese or traditional Taiwanese marriage pattern, and marry a man who will abuse me and rightfully feel like he could, or I can choose to pursue this eternal marriage, this concept to make it into um, reality. And so I chose the latter, or I had a dream of having an eternal marriage from for myself.
0: Thank you. Okay, so Rachel, I mean, turn it over to you, what role did LDS Church and LDS Culture play in your ideas about marriage.
3: Thank you. And I just want to say as a shout out for the genre of memoir, I love memoir because everyone's got their own personal story. And I think sometimes we get into a really didactic flat way of thinking about like Mormon marriage. And, you know, what Allison shares in her book, I mean, it makes the stakes of educated look tame. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, and so it's a very different perspective and I love it. I grew up in Davis County, Utah, a very kind of different landscape and in a very um, in in a family where my parents loved me and my siblings a great deal, but hated each other. And I didn't know any different. I just thought that's how, you know, parents behave towards each other. Um, I always grew up with the ideal, um, you know, kind of what Allison talked about with what the missionaries brought of, you know, eternal marriage. It is happy the plan of happiness and then I would go home and I think experience some very early cognitive dissonance of you know both this isn't quite what I see but not having the emotional or intellectual like capability to really understand that I just felt a lot of dissonance and it was a very very heavily LDS community a little bit lower class and know so i i just had so many pressures implicit and explicit um that i felt and you know you could go another zip code over or even the what you know the woman across the street would have a different memoir you know this was just my my experience my memoir but i i kind of felt like my, my my most important thing i could ever do was to get married in the temple and have a family and there was something just very early in me that resisted that um but i also you know wasn't an outright rebellious type i wanted to be good i wanted to be liked i wanted to be loved particularly after some difficult things within my family but i do remember you know in, in the in the process of writing this book was really trying to articulate the invisible um to make visible those pressures you know everything from remembering you know in middle school one of my friends got some some you know, teen-appropriate gifts for a birthday, but then also got a vacuum cleaner and some queen-size furniture to help ease the transition into marriage. And I thought, what a great idea! I need to go tell my parents about that. And it's like we were fourteen, you know. Um, you know, just just stuff like that. And um, it, and you know, so so it was always the expectation for me. And then my kind of journey of choice was to. Rebel in kind of a, a very good Mormon girl, <laughs> kind of sort of way around that until it ultimately came to a head when I got married and um, just sort of spiraled into a, like a panic attack of like, what have I done? I've just gotten married in the temple and I'm not sure I believe in marriage, let alone eternal marriage. Um, so, a very different journey. But yeah, Mormonism was an essential part of that and I couldn't strip that away from the book. It would cease to be the book.
1: Well, Rachel, your experience was interesting to me because my parents got divorced when I was about the same age as you. I was the oldest of seven kids. And I was similarly worried about marriage in the sense that I was worried my, my husband would leave me, would you know, go off and have affairs like my dad did. But I feel like, uh, you had the addition of your mother, Mm. who it sounds like was becoming, well, she had been abused herself, uh, and she was very paranoid. uh, And she became sort of more mentally unstable and ill. Yes. So you, you, you didn't, it felt like you didn't really have anyone to count on. As you were growing up, to and I and I feel like I I feel like that affected your uh, your feelings about marriage probably a lot. Um, I was really shocked. You you didn't go into it in your book, but you just said you you mentioned how your mom said um, you know lock your door you and don't sit on your dad's lap anymore and lock your door at night, you never know what your dad will do. And so, I mean, you you had your dad, and I don't... That's right. I couldn't tell from the book, like, exactly what your relationship with your dad was later, but obviously he was gone, he was... At least you were living with your mom for a while. Um, And so you had to rely on her, but she was suspicious of your dad. I can totally see how that would make everything really hard for you to trust in the institution of marriage. I mean, Allison didn't have a good either as far as uh, as her parents' relationship.
3: Yeah, we we pat ourselves on the back. We made it. We wrote books. So now now we Yeah, I felt that I was on my own truly, very 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 early in my life even before I was kicked out of my house at 15. And so yeah, it was it was hard to trust and to learn to trust that I could you know, put my faith in someone else. That was a very vulnerable thing.
1: There was nothing from your dad that made, that made you think he was trying to sexually molest you. This was all just in your mom's mind, right?
3: No, no. And my, my mother's since been diagnosed with a delusional disorder and it's it's a cousin of schizophrenia. And I'm actually her legal guardian. I became her legal guardian in my twenties. So she, you know, she is, those, those delusions of persecution were were coming. And so, they don't have to be grounded in reality, yeah. That came from her
1: own experiences.
3: Absolutely, she wanted me to be safe and innocent and good and you know, she loved me and that was her way of trying to protect me.
0: Rachel, how would you compare your experiences in, of kind of dating culture? You're both at BYU for a while, both undergraduates at BYU for a while. and
3: BYU and also- is in both of our books, that's true.
0: <laughs> that's right. So, how do you remember, what, what's your feelings about kind of the dating culture at BYU and and the expe- expectations about marriage? Uh, you were there, sounds like just a little bit after Allison, So I wonder if things had changed a little bit in the time between.
3: Yeah, Alison, do you wanna talk about your experience at BYU? Yes, so I was, um, I was at BYU from 1997 to 1998.
2: Not very long, but at the time, uh, the common phenomenon is that you will have, well, I, at the time I stayed at Desert Tower, it doesn't exist anymore, but it's the single girls dormitory. dormitory. And all these girls were about, well, you know, they were freshmen, so they just barely graduated from high school, 18 years old, maybe 19. And there were a lot of bridal showers going on in a dorm almost at least once uh once a month there will be a bridal shower and the very first time i saw a party at the dorm for one of the dorm girls i thought it was a birthday party because it was decorated so cute it was pink it was pink everywhere and pink you know the girls look pink too you know she she was like maybe 19 years old and so i thought oh how sweet she had a birthday party and then (laughs) And then I saw people bearing gifts, you know, and they gave her pots and pans, and they gave her uh, kitchen towels, and they gave her blenders. And I thought, what kind of party is this? And then I figured out it was a wedding party, and I, I mean a bridal shower. And I thought, but isn't she only 19? And that's when I discovered that there was this phenomenon in, uh, um BYU campus that young girls got engaged and married at a very young age. When I say young, they really were just still barely, barely became adults, you know? And and so I was 24 years old at the time. And I feel like this, I feel like a failure because I was 24, I was single, but divorced, not just single, I was divorced, which means I failed a marriage. I failed a very intimate relationship with a man. And now I'm living with all these new adults who are entering a new phase in their lives, becoming a wife, you know, becoming a future mother. I, anyways, I was under that pressure of, well, I had to quickly find a husband too because I don't want to be left alone. Like the entire dorm, every girl in the dorm will be married off, and I'll be the only one left in the dorm and do you know how that feel? I feel so bad. And I had this fear of abandonment. Because when I was a child, my mother would leave me and my sister home alone. And then I was abandoned by my by my first husband. And so abandonment to me was like the worst kind of punishment that I received not knowing why. Right. And so I feel like watching all these dorm girls 18, 19 year olds getting married and moved out I had that fear of abandonment coming to me so I feel like I had to hurry and do what they do and you know and get myself a husband and so that was the beginning of my very very bad mistake of you know, uh, with Gavin in the story. So I don't know if Rachel's experience at BYU was ever like even close to that kind of, intensity of how you just constantly feel like you have to like you go to class like i went to classes with the wrong intention because i oh when i was a child um in taiwan i was taught to always you know you had to study hard you had to be number one in class which is like there's only one there's only one person can be number one in class but all the kids in my class, like 65 of us, we all wanted to be number one, so it was like impossible. But I was taught to always study hard, study hard. You had to spend like 12 hours a day doing homework or studying or preparing for tests and whatever. And so I brought that culture, that student culture to America, but it did not apply to my BYU student status because I went to classes Um, at BYU, looking for a husband, (laughs) I went to classes, I'm like scanning the classroom, and I'm like, okay, which one is cute, you know, which guy is cute that I can ask out for on a date, so I feel like, I cannot blame BYU, I did that to myself, because I allowed myself to get into that trap, and it was, I feel like the whole thing, I imagine it, like nobody put a gun in my head that you have to find a husband before you graduate from BYU. Nobody did it. But I did it to myself. I, I set up a trap for myself. Well, I think we should acknowledge the culture there. <laughs> yes, yes, it was there. Um I could have but but I was so young and immature and I was also just freshly divorced. And so I feel like I have to immediately Get married again because I could not let my ex husband win in this race. Like, there was no race, but I set it up for myself. It's all in my head. And so I don't know if that culture got worse or more intense when Rachel was at BYU. And I think Rachel was at BYU a lot later than, than I was.
3: Not, not so much later. And I am happy to report that very similar. Um, you know, I think it's very, very different. You know, similar to what I said at the beginning all bet my freshman class, if everyone wrote a memoir, everyone would have a very different memoir. But I, because I was already so primed to be thinking about marriage and afraid of marriage and haunted by marriage, I my lens was filtered for that. And so I remember when I entered BYU, there was a, like an entrance survey. And uh, one of the questions was, you know, what is your motivation to go to BYU? And I remember one of the multiple choice options was to find an eternal companion. and. I remember being really frustrated by that, but also I think it's honest. I think that is a lot of why a lot of people, and maybe that's also changed since I've been at BYU too. And again, it's very individual, but I I think there's definitely a culture, a larger culture that generates some pressure. The dedication of my book is to just kind of like a chorus of a bunch of women who wrote to me their own experiences. And one of the very first, there's a lot about Young women feeling like they're behind when they're they're not behind. They're so young. Um, I'll just I'll just read like two. One is the girl who received dishes, pans, and towels for holidays, while her brother received stereos and skis. Then received a hope chest filled with linens and quilts for her high school graduation. And then the next one is for the 23 year old. He was cornered by a bishop's wife after church and asked, "Do you feel like an old maid?" Wishing you were already married. You know, so maybe not everyone has had these experiences, but it is certainly, I mean, in, I had probably 400 responses when I, when I asked for experiences and that atmosphere, I think, on, on young minds, you know, similar to what Allison said, I had such a, like, I had no sense of self, you know, when I was in college, I was just flailing about. And so it's hard to kind of know what you're about and to have your boundaries when you are just trying to fit in and be okay and get through this thing um called college
0: jen you were at uiu a, a decade before allison <laughs> do you have any any thoughts about that
1: well i grew up in washington state and i think that the the atmosphere is different maybe outside of utah as far as just some of the things about getting married you said almost annually everyone listed desirable qualities in a future husband and then your leaders encourage you to pray for your future husband to have a good day because he was out there. Um, So I I didn't have anything like that in my ward. And I didn't want to go to BYU because there were a lot of girls from my ward who went there and then just got married and dropped out. And so I considered myself a serious scholar and I, so I didn't want to go to BYU for that reason, but that's where I ended up going. And I was happy, I, I was happy I went but definitely the culture there is more, I guess, what I would feel like uh, pushing people to get married
3: young. And in one other quick thing I'll say on that, you know, I, I don't think necessarily, I mean, there are certainly explicit things. And I, I have tried to name some of those in my own life in my book, but I don't think pressure has to be explicit. I think it can be implicit. And I think even like my title and like East winds and just, just, you can't see air, but you feel its impact and you breathe it in. And so I think you know, just just trying to reckon with that invisible has been really important in, in at least me writing this book.
0: So, Rachel, in your book, you feature your honeymoon trip with your husband, where you mixed this long held desire to go travel around the world uh, with your honeymoon trip. And you decided as your project, you're going to study marriage all around the world. Um, so I'm interested. Both of you talked about kind of this early marriage and. Allison talked about uh, both the Chinese, perhaps Chinese and LDS ideas about sex and marriage and how much it was talked about in the society and how much it wasn't talked about and, and the, and the problems that caused. Uh, so may I'll ask both of you, both uh, kind of LDS culture, the way it talks about sex and marriage, uh, the way that young women hear about it and talk about it and, you know, the way it's taught in lessons. How did that, impact you? And did you see other places in the world where you think that was done well?
3: One of the reasons why I started traveling early um, in my life and chronically, like I was just traveling at every opportunity, work three jobs, suffer, eat all the peanut butter and go on the next trip. And then anthropology kind of gave me an outlet and hopefully a maturing of my motives for travel. But I was just fascinated that there's different ways to live. And, and I think it helped give me some distance to help see my. I, I still it still took me years to be able to see my own culture with that kind of distance. But I just loved seeing a refreshingly different takes among the Karen tribe in Thailand. I learned that they get married in black and blue because it represents sadness, and how different that was from like the virginal fairy tale princess dresses. You know that that are all over. You know every summer in my Facebook feed in India. Learning that doubt is was something codified in their actual ritual and acknowledging and naming that.
0: And that's a great story. Could you actually tell us about the, this Indian ceremony that you witnessed?
3: Yeah. So you know, India is so vast and so diverse, and so this is just the the Canada speaking region of India. I I went to a Brahmin priest with my friend Chaitra who helped me translate to learn about a very intricate ceremony. And part of that ceremony, there is um, a rite called the Yashikatra, which is called the pilgrim place and it's at some point during the wedding itself the groom gets up and walks away and says like actually you know i want to study the vedas i want to like gain more education i want to go to the sacred city of arnasi and the bride's father has to like go get him and say like you can go on a journey just take my daughter with you and granted that is codified and so it's not actual necessarily doubt and it's very gendered which has to be reckoned with but for me you know who i felt like i was bashed over the head of certainty and like happily ever after like so much like a squeaky record in a really kind of sinister way just my own experience it was so refreshing to see an experience and, and just just have someone name the path not taken and i think ultimately for me being able to embrace my own own um my own doubts and questions and concerns actually made it more of a choice which made it feel more empowering and more romantic in my mind because it wasn't just a given. And that's more or less what I have to come to in my journey.
1: Rachel, I wondered if you thought someone with your same background, who did not grow up in our church, or maybe another church that emphasizes marriage so much, if if you'd grown up an atheist in your situation, do you think you would have ever gotten married?
3: I've thought about that. I've thought about that. I I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to really even say who I would be without this and what choices I would have made or not made. I really believe in partnership and I really like the idea of companionship and the choice of meaningful, beautiful partnership. I I hope I would have gotten over my fears in another way, but you know, I yeah, I, I have a very different take on on, on marriage, and and it's possible that I would have gotten married late um, you know, very late in my life or never. I could definitely see that possibility and just been a, one of these wandering people in the world who I actually admire a great deal. I think you know there's many ways to live.
0: Both of your first books are memoirs. And so I want to ask about that. why Why do you think uh, that you you were drawn to the idea of memoir and creative nonfiction? Uh, for your first work. And it seems like both of you started with blogs and then transitioned into ma- writing a book from that. So I'm going to ask you about the choice. What, what drew you to that? And, you know, do you have any interest in writing in other forms as well? Uh, Allison, can we start with you?
2: What inspired me, what got me started to work on this piece of memoir was despair. I was in despair and I could not bear it. And what I meant was, you know, my experience watching my parents, the relationship they had, and then my own experience with my first husband in America. I was in despair, and I had all these experiences inside of me, and I, I felt this urge of letting it out so that I can create space inside of me for better things to come because I carry all these painful memories and these memories were haunting me with the worst kind of power. And every time I thought of my past, it was nothing but despair and I didn't like it. And I thought if I just let it out, then maybe I would create room, create space in me for better memory to come in and filled me with joy. In 99 Fire Hoops, I described my relationship with my first husband, but in the last 10% of the story, I introduced a new character, Drake. I eventually marry him, and he's my second husband, my current husband. We have three children together. And when, when our children were very young, well, we live in Utah because I met him at BYU. <laughs> Hello, of course. So I met him at BYU, we got married and we stay in Utah. And we move around in Utah, um, many times. So we always stay in I don't know if it was coincidence, but I was always, always the, the one and only immigrant, the one and only person of color on my street in my ward in my community, always. And so when our children were little, Uh, They would go and play in their friends, you know, uh, neighbor kids' homes, and they would come home and they would tell me, mom, 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 Dave's mom is so awesome. Well, I know Dave's mom. Dave's mom lives like two doors down from me. I know her. And I just could not figure out why Dave's mom was so awesome that my kids came home was like gushing about how awesome Dave's mom was. And then they said, so I, I asked my children, why is Dave's mom so awesome? And they said, because she speaks English. Well, apparently I did not speak English, but you know what? Kids, kids have no filter. They don't say things to hurt you. They, They just tell you what they observe you know, they're very honest and so I let it go because I did not believe my kids said that to hurt my feelings you know this mom can speak English so what I speak Chinese really well really well and so then my kids started um, school and I would go and volunteer in their school in their classes and my oldest at the time was in kindergarten he would come home he would come home and say mom when you come to my class to volunteer, can you tell my teacher that you will not take my friends out to the hall to teach him how to read? Why don't we just do quiet work? Why don't we just, you know, cut papers, make posters and sort books in their classroom library and great homework? That kind of work. Like just don't talk. And I thought, I can talk. Why can't I talk? Why can't I take your friend out to the hall and teach him how to read? He struggles with reading. I can help, you know. And he said, no, don't, because my friends made fun of me because you have an accent. So then his friends were making fun of him because he was an extension of me. You see, even though my child spoke perfect English, perfect five year old English. Right. And also my child would not eat the lunch I packed for him because he was embarrassed to open his lunch box and there were chicken curry in there and there were like chicken dumpling in there and they were like pig intestine or pig hooves, whatever and delicacies. Okay. <laughs> but he was so embarrassed because his friends had peanut butter jelly sandwich on Wonder Bread. And so he said, like, I don't want to be so different. People like, you know, just make fun of me. And that's when I realized my children could not embrace 100% of themselves because they did not understand the 50% of them. They 50% of them, half of them is Chinese, but they had no understanding of that part of their culture. And so they were embarrassed. They wanted to get rid rid of it. They wanted me to assimilate. They wanted me to be Dave's mom who ran marathons, who scrapbook, who, you know, all these things that my neighbors were doing my kids wanted me to do that and spoke English. you know i had to speak english without an accent and so i thought if my children could just understand why is it that i have an accent why is it that i celebrate different holidays why is it that i dress differently sometimes you know and why is it that Running a marathon is not important to me, or scrapbooking. Yeah, it's it's cute, it's fun, but I would rather do other things because I am me. I brought Taiwan with me. I left Taiwan, but Taiwan did not leave me. And because my children were an extension extension of me, I have a right. I have this parental obligation to help them understand what I brought with me, what I passed on to them. And so that was the motivation for me to start writing down my my story, my experiences in Taiwan. And I started out with the blog because I did not have friends in the neighborhood at the time, you know, because I was different. So every night after my children went to bed, I put them to bed at about 8 p.m. and then I had about two hours every night to myself to do whatever I wanted. And because I did not have friends, I would rearrange furniture in my home. I would try to move the couch from the living room in the basement up to the second floor in a different room. And of course, I couldn't do it on my own, so I would ask my husband to help me move the couch. And then two days later, I went and asked him and said, hey, can you help me move the couch back to the basement? Because he did look back, it uh, did not look good there, and I had to put it back here. And he said, yeah, we just do it two days ago. I'm like, yeah, but, but. What else am I gonna do I have nothing else to do I had to move furniture you know and and he said well why can't you just start a block and this was in 2006 and I had no idea what the block was and I mean how do you spell block what is it he said b l o g block oh well never heard of it never heard of it what is it and he's like it's like it's like an online journal right you just keep your journal online and maybe other people read it and you will have like a readership. And I thought, do I want people to read my journal? But then that concept hit me because I was already in the process of thinking, hey, I need to write down my stories, write down my experiences in Taiwan for my children. And and then it became a book.
0: Wow. Thank you. So Rachel, how about you? How what pushed you towards creative nonfiction?
3: you know, you can tell when you read a book like Allison's you can feel when someone writes a book because they have to and 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 I do think that that is also what brought me to you know This book I've I've written in other genres Where you know kind of an idea floats to me and I think oh, maybe I'll do that and this was this is very different I felt like I had to write the story because I had to understand my life and I had to unravel (laughs) this this haunting tension in me and like what is marriage what do i think about it what brought me to this point how did i arrive where i arrived and there were no other books you know that i that i saw that that represented this experience so i wrote the book that i needed to write as both present me wanting to understand but also for the me um you know eight years ago who needed a book like this so i think in many ways you know i wrote nonfiction because i was just so fascinated and troubled by just memory and life itself i think the word that allison used of haunting is very apt um and so you know that alone i mean just the constraints of what happened or what we think happened was incredibly like rich to play with you know in nonfiction, we always talk about you know you you write the first draft of kind of like what happened and then you have to write what it meant and what it meant can be so many different things and so that alone felt very expansive. It was such a Herculean effort to do this book. And it's actually interesting too. Allison has a very similar trajectory. We both wrote novels after this. <laughs> like, we'll both go back to nonfiction. We're gonna be in a writing groups next year. But it was also nice to take a break from nonfiction and not have to like open up a vein and just, you know, write about something that happened 300 years ago to someone else. <laughs> so, you know, but non- nonfiction, I, in memoir in particular, I am I am a big fan. I'd love some wisdom from from you, Allison. Um, you know, in, in your story too, it's so vulnerable. It's so open. It's putting the hardest things that have ever happened to you out into the world to be consumed by strangers. And I'm curious how you navigate that, particularly with boundaries of your like actual life now, and also your future work where. Like already I've grown really weary of people asking me what Austin thinks of the book. He loves the book, but like, why are, like, everyone's asking me about like all my current stuff. And I remember at a keynote, I heard you talk about all the questions were like, do you still talk to X? Do you still talk to Y? You know, like, especially with nonfiction, you know, because these are our lives, but it's also not our lives. You know, it's our best representation of our past. And so I'm curious how you negotiate that boundary as someone who's just put my whole heart out to be <laughs> blown around into the world. That is
2: such a wonderful question. So for me, I always look at it this way when people ask me personal questions because they have finished re- reading the book, right? And they're like, well, have, uh, do you still talk to your ex and how, how does he respond to this book? That tells me this person has invested time to absorb my story. And for that, I'm very grateful because, as I mentioned earlier, this book started out as a legacy project, but now it's a passion project because I have been told, you know, I have readers who reach out and tell me how much they resonate with the story, the, the theme of the story, and how much this has given them courage to make choices that work for them and no longer being burdened by cultural expectations or tradition that are unjust, right? And so I appreciate people's investing time and energy to read my book. And so I feel like if they ask me personal questions, it's because they are interested. They are interested. They pay attention. I don't want to say i'm an attention seeker but in a way i was because that meant my voice was heard you know my story was accepted and and people accept your story in different ways it can be positive it can be negative people might come to you with negative reviews but that's okay for them to have negative review or opinions about your book that meant that person has spent the time to read your story and i think that's a gift that person has given me to read a book you know 300 pages that probably will take that person maybe three hours three days three weeks i don't know but that's the time that person is willing to set aside from his busy schedule to be with me and my story and so i always tell them thank you thank you and it's okay if people don't like my story if they have bad things to say about my story because we cannot please everyone we can only tell our truest story, tell the truth, tell the truth and tell the truth and answer their questions with truth. And then just be happy with it. I'm my own boss, meaning I write and I communicate with my my brain. My brain works with me. Every morning I check in with my brain, my boss, and I say, I'm here, I'm in my desk. I am ready to work are you ready? And my brain and I will be like, yes, I'm ready. So start writing. And I do that every day. Well, I try to every day, but what I'm saying is I check in with my mind, right? And then by the end of the day, I clean up my desk and I leave my home office. I go back to my family. That is my another life. I have a writing life, I have a family life, and my family life is so much more important to me, means so much more to me. And so my focus is on my family. If people don't like my writing, if they don't like my story, and they want to trash it, and trash my hard work and effort, that's okay. Because I always, at the end of the day, I go back to my family. My family loves me. I love them. And that is what matters to me.
3: That's such a great frame. Thank you so much, Allison.
2: That's
3: a great way to think about it. Yeah, I think I, I'm still so new at my book being alive in the world, but I have written vulnerable essays before. And I will say, you know, even though the book is very open and vulnerable, it is not raw. It's gone through a lot of edits and a lot of readers. And, you know, there were ultimately things that I cut out because it wasn't serving the story. I'm, but I, but I'm learning, and I think it helps that I'm working on new writing projects, and that I have, you know, things going forward. But having worked on this book for eight years, it just has my whole heart, and it's, it's hard to let it go in that way. So I'm in a funny transition state with it. But I've been just so grateful for, for the readers and the reviews that have come in so far. And I know one day there's going to be that one, one star review. Maybe it's tomorrow, you know. But, but yeah. Overall, just feeling really grateful.
1: You're such a beautiful writer. I love the way that you cut into different parts of your life and then tie things back with metaphors. So I wrote one down. I said in chapter five, you have to go back to Peru to get a stamp for your entry visa. And you leave for the boat at three AM and to save money, like we all remember being young and poor and going, Oh, I'm just gonna walk, I'm just gonna walk there. I'm not going to take a taxi. I'll just walk there. No problem. And then you get surrounded by a pack of rabid dogs. Okay. Not rabid, but they're that, you know, in your mind, they could, they're going to eat you up. Um, At least that's how I read it. And then you stop the story to show you guys driving back across the country to Utah for your wedding, where you are arguing with Austin in the car and showing him your worst self and you reflect that this was probably to make him reject you before he reject, get him to reject you. And she said, yeah, I know this is a mistake getting married and he just doesn't react to you. And And then you cut back to the story where you're in Peru and Austin is shining a light in the dog's eyes and saying, don't run because then they'll attack us. And you make it safely to the boat. And you say, how did you know how to do that? And he says, Well, I guess it was instinct. And then you tie it back in to your relationship with him saying, even though you had all these worries, and you had all these concerns, that a voice inside you was saying stay with Austin, there was some instinct saying, you know, this is a good place, and I'm going to stay there. Anyway, so I just love how you tie all that together. It's, it's beautiful.
3: Thank you. The structure took me a very long time to come to. I like to joke that it was like a Roomba vacuum that hits every wrong corner before it writes itself and goes the correct way. And so, but I I think the structure and similar to Allison's book, it's called 99 Fire Hoops is divided into 99 sections. And it's not a straight chronology, you know, the way we order a story and the juxtaposition of narratives like. You know, i can still hear in my mind now it's a book so it's just like people can't argue with me anymore or they can just leave their one-star review like we just talked about but you know um i remember one professor was like you've got to take out that wedding scene like you're in the middle of a dog attack like i don't want to jump there and i went back and forth back and forth but so much of the structure of my whole book is a back and forth and i think for me those circling dogs was very much me like my mind circling a circular argument with austin and 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 it also had a, a moment where Austin had said, you know, just remember, I'm sorry for everything in advance. And then we're like in this moment, and he kind of, like I've never been so scared. I really do think we actually we could have perished, as my grandparents would say. Um, and he kind of saved my life. And so, you know, it it worked for me. That juxtaposition helps me say things that I can't necessarily put in words.
1: There's there's a lot of a lot of metaphors in uh, contained in there. It, it did remind me of 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 um car trips with Andrew where uh when we were first married they were the worst place the trap and 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 Andrew does not cry I've seen him cry twice in our 30 year marriage once when he had um the chicken pox and he, <laughs> he cried at a movie and the other time was when I was so mean to him in the car that he I he I, he cried because I was so mean to him. So I could totally relate to this.
3: I'm glad I'm not the only <laughs> one. the only one. <laughs> but, you know, really, I think, like, the more I, and, you know, and even observing family members, I think cruelty and anger and sharp words are really just a projection of pain and just saying, like, I want to be heard, I'm not heard, I'm not heard, I'm not heard. Um, and there are definitely more mature ways of going about that. But, um but yeah, it's definitely the car rides are difficult. <laughs> they still are.
0: <laughs> okay, so Allison was had a had a question for Rachel, right?
2: Yes, Rachel, you're such a wonderful uh, master writer. What would be your number one advice to anyone who
3: wants to become a writer? Oh, I would so much rather you answer that, and I could listen. <laughs> I think for me, and and Allison, this actually, this is a sideways, this is something that you've given me too as a gift, but uh, I once heard it said that to become a writer, you need just an enormous amount of grit and perseverance, and Allison and I both had very wonky journeys to publication, and it takes grit. You just cannot give up. You cannot give up, and I think a lot of really, really talented writers just don't put in the work or they just give up. Um and you can't. You you just can't. That is really the difference is someone who's willing to just keep pushing through every single rejection, you know, no matter how many or how many times you're crying at the keyboard. <laughs> like, you know, you just you just gotta believe that there is an end to this and there's a reason you're doing it, even if you don't know at the time why that is.
0: Well I have some I have some kind of wrap up questions. Jennifer, did you want to ask any questions before I go to that?
3: Yes. So I read
1: the questions for book groups in the back of your book. One of the questions was, was this a love story? And who was it a love story to? Here's a quote from your book. It says, it took me years of writing to realize that this book was a love story. And I thought, this is a love story to Austin. He seems like an awesome guy, a lot like my own husband. And... I thought it was a story of coming to learn about yourself and seeing what a steady and wonderful person he was, and how you navigated that whole thing. But then later you said, I didn't have to marry Austin. I think I would have been just fine not marrying Austin or anyone. And when I read that, I thought, that doesn't sound like a love story to Austin so i guess i want to know the answer is this a love story and if so to who
3: yeah i think this is unabashedly a love story and i think for me even just dissecting like marriage does not equal the epitome love story it's something in my own head i've had to kind of i mean even just in my friendships like i love my friends i love my friends you know there's so many kinds of love but yeah i think this is unabashedly a love story definitely to austin and honoring this year that we took together just some of the most incredible experiences of my life and the way that we entered into this partnership and the way you know he kind of helped me have a foundation from which i could finally really grow and face my traumatic childhood in putting these two books in conversation i think allison's book is also a love story you know yes we have these partners by the end you know that we've made you know our journey to find But I think it's also a love letter to our complicated families. You know, no one's being just totally thrown under the bus here. I think it's a love letter to my mother, as hard as that is. And I think it's also a love letter to my young self. I really do think, you know, whether it's me or even the women in the the dedication section who shared with me their stories that were similar and some different, some totally opposite. So much of the gesture of writing this book was giving my younger self a voice and, you know, going back and holding my hand and saying like, you're okay. You are enough. You're going to find your way. You know, this life is yours, not what anyone else has said it needs to be. And that is the only thing that matters is that you learn to trust your own intuition and that this moment is on this journey. It's with Austin, you know, but learning to find my own voice outside of the pile of all the other vortexing voices. That's a very nice thing I did (laughs) for my young self because, boy, this was hard to write. As Allison, I know you felt similarly.
0: Thank you. everybody. Is there any books you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to us, either with LDS content or without?
3: Yes, so
2: I recently finished reading a memoir, Maggie O'Farrell's I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. I like how she structured. So it's memoir in essay so it's not really a chronological or you know coming of age story of her experience but instead it's 17 brushes with death and so she used 17, 17 events that happened to her that she had the near-death experience and then she but she used different body parts to structure all these individual essays and I thought that was brilliant and I really enjoy reading that one. But right now this week that book is my second favorite. My very, very favorite is Rachel's East Wind. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Rachel, you're just oh can I just oh you're gonna have to edit this out. Can I just worship you? Can I kiss your feet? <laughs>
3: Why are you so wonderful? <laughs> oh like, I found you first. I found you first. Yeah no, Allison, Allison email each other mm-hmm. every single Saturday and just give like a check in we call each other accountability partners and we just say like what was the high from the week what was the low from the week we just have so much love and solidarity <laughs> and it's really it's amazing like we didn't grow up anything alike we don't live in the same state but we just we adore each other so i'm just so grateful that you're reading my book i think my book recommendations i am absolutely in love with lisa van orman hadley's writing she wrote irreversible things which is a genre-bending kind of hybrid of uh, short stories and a memoir. Fantastic. She was my editor for East Winds and was an absolute delight to work with. The memoir I am most anticipating that's just out with BCC Press is by Emily January, called Home Yesterday. And I had the privilege of hearing some early excerpts read aloud by the author and was just completely blown away. So looking forward to that too.
0: Great. Thank you. And I just want to say that at the dialogue book report we had an interview with lisa van Orman hadley about her book irreversible things in number six so everybody go back and listen to that
1: allison i thought some elements of your story seemed so fantastic they were like magical realism i'm thinking of you telling us that you were four or five and you were talking about the meaning of life I remember writing an essay, I mean, like a short story in seventh grade where I said something about religion and the judges said, oh, you know, a kid, the the kid in my story was 13 or whatever, too. And they said, a kid your age wouldn't be thinking about that. And I was like, and yet a kid my age wrote this story thinking about it. But anyway, so but five is awfully precocious. And I know, we know we live in Asia. We know what a big deal it is to uh, get into the prestigious universities and to get high scores on those uh, tests that everybody wants to be number one at, like you were talking about. And you did that even though you were raised in a slum and didn't have a lot of family support. So I wondered if you if you even thought about that as sort of almost feeling like magical realism inside your memoir.
2: To go to your first question about me wondering about life's purpose at a very young age. I look back and I can pinpoint that precise moment when I was about four, between four and five years old, why it became important to me to know answers that had been bothering me it was because my great-grandmother died my family gave her a very traditional chinese funeral and i went to that funeral and i witnessed these pole bearer lowering her casket into a hole in the ground and her body was in the to me okay so now i'm talking about this event as a five, four or five-year-old child. And I watched that whole thing happen. And in my mind, I was thinking, wait, great-grandma, she is in that box. And I saw earlier that day, I saw people nail the full corner of the coffin lid. So I knew as a child, I knew she could not get out if that lid was nailed. right? And so they, they lower her casket into the ground, and then they bury the box. And I thought, wait a second, what if she wakes up, right? And she can't, first, first of all, she cannot get out of that box. And second of all, that hole was so deep, she couldn't climb out and, you know, get out. And she will be trapped underground with all the earthworms. Earthworms! I have this phobia of anything that crawls like snakes anyway. So I was so terrified of that scene, what I saw and why is it? I was afraid because nobody, no adults had ever talked to me about death. I didn't know what death was to me. I thought my great grandmother was taking a nap and they seal her in the box and bury her and she could not get out. And that's why I was like, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be left alone underground and not being able to get out and to have all the earthworms come and eat me up, right? And so I had that fear and I wanted to know, I wanted to know why they did that to my great-grandmother. So I went and asked my parents, right? And told me, oh, she's dead. She's not going to come back. She's not going to get out. And so then I thought, well, what is death? If she's not going to come back, then where is she going? And where did she even come from? in the first place so i had all these questions unanswered because my parents either did not know the answers themselves or they did not want to bother with the child with i was four or five and i had life and death questions right and then like that's not a child she's not a child she's a demon child right and i'm like go away don't waste my time and that was also part of our culture is that Me as a child, at least in my family, we were not encouraged to go and bother adults with random questions. We were not encouraged to ask questions. We were encouraged to obey everything they tell you to do. When they tell you to be silent, especially girls, they tell you to be silent and just wait for permission to speak. You do that. That's a good girl if you do that. But I wasn't a good girl, I had questions. I was dying of all these, you know, I, just give me the answers. I want to know, I want to know. And so that's um, why as a very young child, I had questions about life and death. And then your second question about uh, growing up in the slum, my, my peers, my classmates, their families were rich and Their parents send them to cram schools, right? And so they they got supplemental classes after school, and they work on their science, their English and math classes so that they could score better on standardized tests. And I didn't have that privilege because my family were, you know, could not afford it, and parents did not care. I can't tell you why. I feel like in a way that God's grace was with me because I believe, and I know I'm a child of God. And he put me in that family for a purpose, what purpose? I don't know, but he knows, he knows why I needed to be in that family. And he has been watching over me all these years. And he doesn't have that intention of abandoning me because my parents could abandon me, my ex-husband could abandon me people could easily abandon me if they want to, but not God. And so when I was in that helpless place where the adults who were responsible for raising me, for helping me, educating me, guiding me, and they were not doing their job, God was going to step in and say, let me help you. Let me take you to a better place. Give me your hand let me hold your hand and let's go together walk with me right and I feel like that's that's how I feel and it might not be true it might just be my imagination but I imagine it in this way to comfort and console that little child inside of me that inner child who'd been injured emotionally and wanted to be held by the hand And so I imagined God was holding my hand. And I imagine he was the one who helped me pass the tests, who guided me to America. But life wasn't always gonna be perfect, even if God was walking with you. He was just there so you know you're not alone, but you still have to face challenges. You still have to make choices, but he will always be there right next to you. I'm not behind him like Chinese women were supposed to walk behind a man on the left side, no, I'm right with God, right, right next to him and he's holding my hand. That's what I imagined, how I was able to pass tests without going to cram school, having a reading disorder and struggling so hard with reading and writing and all that and struggle with so many things, could not see, right? Cause I had poor eyesight, my parents didn't know. And so I had all these health problems untreated, but here yeah. I am doing my best. Trying to live the best life I can. And so nobody asked me this question. I hope it's okay. I answered when I was writing 99 fire hoops and there were some parts in the story where I revisited very painful memories and I had to conduct an imaginary interview with these characters who had hurt me in the past in real life. For example, Cameron right? So I conducted imaginary interview with him. And it's like what we're doing right now, we're talking, we're talking. And so I imagine the situation where I'm sitting across the table from him. And I asked him, Cameron, why did you abandon me? Why did you do that? You knew I would not be able to survive. You knew that that's why you left. But tell me why? Did you really want to hurt me? And of course, this is an imaginary interview I was not going to get any answers from him so I had to come up with so I'm talking to myself right here okay so this experience taught me that it's best to assume that everyone is doing his best perhaps at that moment when Cameron finally decided I'm gonna abandon Allison maybe that was the best he could do because maybe this marriage to him was dead and he had he had to get out and when I had that revelation when I had that imagined answer that oh that's the best he could do I wasn't hurt anymore because he was doing his best how can you blame somebody who's doing his best and then when I had this imaginary interview with my mother who is dead. But I imagine having this conversation with her and ask her mom, why did you abandon me when I was only four years old? I needed you, where did you go? And I imagine her just telling me I had to go because I could not stay home with your father because I was so hurt. I had to save myself so I can come back and save you. But I couldn't tell you that. You would not understand you were only four years old and so when i had that imaginary answer from this interview i thought oh there was pain that i could not see it was deeply inside of her she was doing her best she was not the worst mother in the world she was doing her best and so then i would not be so hurt anymore because how could you blame somebody who's doing her best And so I feel like that's what saved me. That's what saved my sanity. That's what saved my emotional mental health is. I imagine everybody is just doing his or her best. And that's what I can do too. Just love them, accept them. Even if that's false, even if that's untrue, but you have liberated yourself from the hurt, And you can move on and you can create a better life, a happy life for yourself. And that's beautiful.
0: I love how both of you had so much grace for the people in your story. Some very difficult people, some people who did cruel things, but you both were always trying to, you know, look at the story from their point of view and understand why they might be doing these things. I I thought that was a wonderful part of your books. And let me just say for the listeners that I highly recommend both of these books. I think they're both beautifully structured. They're amazing stories. And I'm very excited for more people to be reading these books. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. This show is produced and edited by me with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent podcasts who promote inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thoughts, and arts and culture, including wonderful shows like Face and Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepsen and their great discussion of theology and how the world works. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having us. It's really great to be here.
0: Allison, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so
2: much for having me. Such a great honor.
0: And Jennifer, thank you for being such a great guest host.
2: You're welcome, Andrew.
4: My name is Zachary Davis. My name is Morris Thurston. My name is Michael Austin. My name
1: is Rebecca Deschweinitz. I'm a board member at the Dialogue Foundation.
4: We are asking for your financial support. Dialogue has thrived for nearly six decades because of the subscribers and donors who share a vision of thoughtful and rigorous scholarship, deeply personal essays, poetry, art, fiction, and more. We're so proud of all we've accomplished this year, but we need your support to continue. We are excited to announce the launch of the new Dialogue website, a beautifully redesigned way to experience the journal. We've improved the look and feel, made it easier to search and navigate, and added tons of new features, like author pages, for each of the more than 4,000 writers who have published in Dialogue over the years.
3: The journal is at the heart of what we do. In 2022, we published groundbreaking issues, including a historic special issue on Heavenly Mother in Critical Context, the first of any LDS venue exclusively on this topic.
4: In addition to the journal, we continue to offer so much other great content. The Dialogue Gospel Study, available live and on YouTube and podcast, features a diverse range of expert teachers. Also, check out some of our poetry, fiction, and personal essays in the Dialogue Out Loud series, and keep up on the latest fiction and nonfiction books, including exclusive in-depth interviews on the Dialogue Book Report podcast. The Dialogue Book Club continues to grow with exclusive benefits and access for subscribers, featuring the best scholars and writers publishing right now. Members get to meet with the authors and hear behind-the-scenes stories.
1: A few years ago, Dialogue made the momentous decision to
3: make all of our print and podcast content completely free online with no paywall barrier.
4: Subscriptions to the print edition alone do not cover the cost to sustain the journal, let alone our other ambitious offerings. We rely on donations to pay our bills. Your
0: contributions keep us going.
4: We have two ways to help create a sustainable model in this free online world consider a regular subscription to the print edition or an annual contribution in lieu of print. In Lifetime, consider a contribution to our sustaining fund to build a long-term foundation for Dialogue's future. We ask for your financial support to continue this legacy of good work and accomplish some of our future goals. Thank you for your generosity to Latter-day Saint thought and culture.
0: Dialogue Podcast Network.